my father-in-law was a bricklayer once, and I thought a lot about the people that go to make buildings, heroic buildings or beautiful buildings. They're all involved in sculpture and just simple bricklaying. So the art of building is capable of many hands over time, and uh, they will keep making it their livelihood, and their, they get satisfaction from beauty. Sir Terry Farrell was born in Manchester in 1938, but it was during his childhood years spent in Newcastle that he decided he wanted to be an architect, at the tender age of 14, no less. Farrell went on to study architecture at Newcastle University before completing a master's in city planning at the University of Pennsylvania in the good old US of States. Returning to England, he worked in partnership with Sir Nicholas Grimshaw for 15 years before setting up his own firm, Farrell's. Farrell himself built postmodern buildings that polarised the public with vast structures such as the MI6 headquarters and Charing Cross train station in London, both of which rubbed up against and made light of the traditional buildings that abut them. In 1981, he completed the TVAM Studios, which are now known as the Breakfast Television Centre in Camden, which remain a true exemplar of the postmodern pluck of the genre. Since then, Farrell's reputation has rocketed as an urban planner, and his buildings can be seen from London to Beijing. I'm Josh Fenner, and this week's big interview will revisit my chat with Sir Terry Farrell, which was recorded earlier this year and first aired on Monocle on Design. So, Sir Terry, you were born in Manchester in 1938, but you grew up in Newcastle. And I've seen from other interviews that you've done that you knew very early on that you wanted to be an architect. How, I ask you, can a young boy of 14 Uh, know that they want to be an architect? Well, I got the impression that it's it's a fairly well-worn path. I was very keen on drawing and painting, and I used to paint landscapes and, uh, and so on. And I was ill at home, and my mother was fed up because uh, one of her boys, uh, as one of four boys, was at home. And um, she had persuaded me, or tried to persuade me, to go to apply to the civil service like her father. A sensible job with a pension and a, and a career uh, yes. progression. And she argued with me that I could paint in the evenings and uh, draw. And uh, then I started drawing because I was invalid at home. I started drawing the house opposite. And she said, why don't you be an architect? And I looked at uh, what an architect was. And uh, I went to work. My art teacher organized for me to go to work in an architect's office that summer. And I was hooked. So of those two places, Manchester and Newcastle, they have a very a very particular vernacular, a particular look. Is that something that you kind of uh, imbibed when you were younger, that you took in from around you, these industrial cities, these beautiful structures? Or is it something you reacted against, do you think? No, I loved, uh, at the time, Manchester, which I don't remember very much about because I was eight when I left here. Uh, there and um, I grew up in Newcastle. I identify with Newcastle, and um, that's an extraordinary city. And you, obviously, which we'll talk about a little later, went on to do a lot of work in Newcastle, but yes. from master planning to the beautiful life centre there. 
But what I'd like to talk to you about is first is uh, education and uh, where education and architecture cross over. You were lucky enough to have a kind of lightning bolt of inspiration that it was a career path that you wanted to follow. But do you think enough children are encouraged to think about the built environment or to make the make the leap from painting to architecture as you did? Uh, and particularly uh, in the um, what you might call the working classes and the lower working the lower middle class. It's a posh profession, is uh, architecture. You need a moneyed client, and you tend to be, uh, or, or during your life, not doing the ordinary. And I think my requesting the archive to Newcastle University, which I'm doing, will be an incentive for boys and girls people like me that will come from that kind of background. So do you think we need to encourage a wider range of voices to talk about the city and to talk about architecture? You mentioned different classes, but I suppose different ethnic minorities and uh, the imbalance of, I suppose, women um, who are architects as well. Do we all need to talk and have these urgent conversations about the city? We need to um, have people involved in the environment environment-making and city-making, who are from the broadest spectrum of the population because the architects are just a fraction. Uh, They do just a fraction of what's needed and what uh, city-making is is about. They do a, a small, posh spectrum. I tend to agree with you. Uh, I'm going to ask you to fast forward. We've spoken a little bit about your childhood, but when you graduated, you took a bit of a plunge, a rather brave one, to work for yourself, not to go and work in the office of a a, a well-known architecture practice, but to seek commissions on your own and uh, do things under your own steam. If you could go back to that time now... What would you tell yourself? What advice would you give to I have no, no idea, uh, really, about what I would do right now. But I did then, in the 60s, just after I'd finished college, I was invited by a, a middle-class, well-heeled person that I'd befriended, Nick Grimshaw, to undertake a, uh, a project for his uncle, and I set up from that point, and I've I only lasted six months uh, working for someone else. I feel like you're being very modest and putting it down to the luck of the commissioning, but um, it must have taken some drive, I suppose, and some grit to think to yourself, "Well, actually, I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm going to do this on my own. I have a strong enough opinion um, about what I do and a faith in my ability to, you know, to run your own practice." Well, I'm uh, unusual. I, I'm the only one of my generation that earned his keep as he went. I relied upon designing and architecture as my sole source of income. And um, I have five children, and I moved homes, and I had the children all had comfortable homes, and uh, and so on. And I earned it from architecture, which is unusual. And uh, is there any advice? We live in uh, a world where 
the notion of entrepreneurship is um, is kind of fetishized to some extent. Everyone has a, a project that they're working on, an idea that they'd like to bring to fruition. But what advice would you give after um, after all the years that you've, uh, as you say, run your own business to people that are starting out today? Or is the landscape so different? I, I that- think um, the mould needs to be broken. It, it's got to be rewarding and financially uh, have some incentive to work for uh, other than libraries and art galleries or property developers. It's got to be, um, the mould has got to be broken so that people are working where they're needed in this field. If you look around you, the streets and the the houses and the um, the hospitals are solely in need of design and dedication of professionals that whatever they are, you know, whether they're in surveying or landscaping or uh, architecture or, or planning or engineering, they need to uh, to go about making the ordinary, the everyday. Absolutely. And um, your vast range of work over these past decades um, defies uh, description in the short and limited time that we have from Charing Cross Station to the station in Shenzhen, embassies, factories and master planning projects. But I ask you, Terry, which of these projects do you remember most fondly? Well, it's my standard reply is you're asking me to uh, choose between my, my children. Uh, Absolutely, and uh, and to do so in broadcast format, so it'll be immortalised. <laughs> yes, I do remember some. They presented particular challenges, and they were the first. The Clifton Nurseries building uh, were the first thing I did in my own right. Uh, where I split when, from Grimshaw in 1980, but TVM, the headquarters of the television breakfast company, was. A particular memorable. So for that's me. that's the project in Camden that has become uh, so famous, so famous since you uh, since you built it. And um, I wondered, are there some buildings that you uh, that you'd rather forget? <laughs> yes, um, I think there are some uh, always that maybe I don't feel as proud of, but. I won't mention them here. <laughs> um, you're, too, you're too much of a gentleman for your own good. Frank Lloyd Wright, I think it was, said that doctors can bury their mistakes, but architects can just grow ivy over them. <laughs> I think it was James Joyce that says geniuses don't do anything by accident as well. So perhaps maybe you learnt something from, uh, from some of those mistakes that you, uh, that you made that you will not, uh, you'll not tell us about now. So, Terry, if I gave you carte blanche to design any building, what would it be? Social housing is... uh, Housing, full stop, is a wonderful thing because you're making... uh, With housing, you're making streets and gardens and and much more. I like all projects. I wake up in the morning and uh, the new challenge is whatever walks in the door. It's interesting you should say housing because in your early career... You were given a lot more housing commissions, or you took a lot more housing commissions. I'm not sure how that came about. Your later career moved um, towards commercial buildings. Why is that? Just out of interest. Well, individual houses, conversions, adaptations for developers or for owner-occupiers are small schemes, and that's where you start off. 
But I'm doing mostly housing now. Um, I like doing housing. We did one or two well-known commercial buildings, and we're still doing them in China. But in this country, we're doing um, mostly housing work. And it's interesting, I suppose, urbanisation is a watchword for everyone. Over half of the world lives in cities. Give it 30 years, it'll be two-thirds of the world. Do architects um, and thinkers about the urban environment, such as yourself, have a new and bigger challenge in light of uh, the density of our cities, in light of giving people places to live that give them the respect that they deserve as human beings. Is there a, a bit of a crunch point for architecture um, at the minute when we look at cities? It's not just the scale, it's the speed uh, with which uh, people are moving to cities. So it's scale and speed, which is absolutely extraordinary. We're now becoming an urban species. There's no escaping it, uh, that the 21st century is going to be a century of city-making. But that doesn't mean that architects are employed in anything like the um, extent to which they're capable. They, uh, I think, they have influence upon, I would guess, less than 10% of all the stuff that goes in to make a city. And um, I've heard you talk favourably about maybe one of your childhood heroes, Ebenezer Howard, uh, his Garden City movement. I heard you, um, maybe you don't like the project particularly, but Norman Foster's notion of an airport in the estuary. You've spoken about the idea that we should we should speak more openly about what goes on in our cities and that architects maybe have some prerogative to provide ideas that they don't charge for, that kind of shape the urban debate. Is that something you, you still believe? Should architects uh, be I, piping I, I, up? Uh, I have a phrase that the place is the client, and which means that uh, you don't get paid. <laughs> so you go out and look at a place. And I take ordinary places. I don't take um, the uh, new city or the new airport. I take an existing hospital or... Um, housing estate, or I particularly take roads, because the roads, all the buildings are front onto them, and you get engaged very quickly in why the road is there. I did a study on the Maribel Euston Road, Pall Mall, uh, I've reversed and changed one-way streets uh, to two-way streets. And so on. In 2013, the Farrell Review was commissioned to look at London in this way that we've been talking about more holistically, not simply as a series of building sites, but as a uh, an interconnected whole. Can I ask you, if I had the power to make you mayor of London, what changes you would make to the master planning of the city? I'm giving you a lot of powers today. I think the mayor of London has very limited powers. It's a token job. The politics of this country I've criticised since I got back from America, uh, but America has got its own problems. Uh, I think political leadership isn't all it's cracked up to be. But I would look at um, housing and roads and all the things I've I've spoken about um, and argued for about city-making and so on. But I think that the mayor's position in London is a false one. He doesn't have powers, wide-sweeping powers. 
he can't collect taxes. Yeah, it always strikes me that a popular political decision isn't always uh, a functional urban one. You know, you look at um, the prevalence of bike-sharing schemes uh, the world over. Half of them are installed in countries where you you wouldn't be able to cycle for very long. You know, the bike-share scheme in Morocco or or Dubai spring to mind uh, in cities that, that, that cannot sustain them. One thing I'd like to ask you about, um, Sir Terry, to move away from London as a topic... You're an architect, you have an appreciation for the world of design. Are there any objects that captured your imagination? I read somewhere that the Spitfire is a bit of an emblem for you. Uh, Can you tell me why that is? Uh, That's because I live in a a factory that made parts of Spitfires, the former Palmer Aero Works, and um, the Aero Works made wheels and uh, brakes and such like. And it was requisitioned in the war to move from the East End. On a broader topic, I think wartime speeds up design. And I don't wish to have more wars, but it epitomizes the saying, never waste a a good crisis. And I think we should look to war and and peace. uh, uh, the bike share scheme, for example, is it caught me by surprise. It it took off. It's a good thing. And um, Uber taxis and uh, getting about uh, and automated vehicles. Well, I was at college in the 60s and we were designing then for automated vehicles. Uh, they, they said they were coming in in 10 years. But we're still waiting. It, yeah, it remains to be seen the success of um, of, of, of some of these things. Um, Terry, some of your work has been very broadly categorised as sitting in what is now called the postmodern pantheon. Do you agree with such labels to describe uh, the work of various architects and various styles over different decades, or do you think there's something more fundamental to architecture? I think there's something much more fundamental in city-making. But whilst it is haute couture for the posh, it will remain uh, in the realm of fashion. I began as high-tech, 15, 20 years. I opened up, through postmodernism, a different debate. And I argue very strongly that postmodernism was a cultural way of seeing rather than a style. And I approached it as context, history, the city as uh, as it is rather than utopian dreaming. And um, all my master planning work and planning work and was moulded by that. But as a fashion, it had a period. And um, the thing I like about the postmodern way of seeing the world is maybe there's um, a bit more humour and a bit more humility and a bit more pastiche and a bit more, I suppose, wryness than the styles that maybe went before it, the uh, the humourlessness of modernism, uh, the prescriptiveness of it all. Well, uh, modernism was very joyless in the uh, 60s and 70s and 50s. Not so much the Festival of Britain, but it became uh, joyless. And it's integrated now. We're all postmodernists, even modernists. 
that have continued right through from early modernism, continued modernism in the 80s and 90s, and have emerged, changed and absorbed uh, the influence of postmodernism and carry on. Uh, like pop music, there are many styles today where it once was very style conscious. It was a very small group of people um, dabbling in fashion and uh, clothes design and um, and architecture. Now it's uh, like pop music. It's you take what you want. Yeah, it's a funny thing. Terry, I have heard you make a comment which struck me as being very profound. You were discussing cathedrals and churches and you said that people still go in to marvel at medieval or Gothic architecture, but they don't go in for the reason that that building was built. Is it ever okay to build a building that's just functional, knowing that human beings will probably come and use it for a different reason, whether it's converted into a shop or whether people just come to ogle at the fact that religion used to be so central to society? Is it possible to build a building for an exact function? I think you have to be true to the materials and the opportunities of your time. But you have to expect, as a designer, an architect, or a planner, that whatever use you were engaged to uh, employ uh, and use the building for, the brief changes almost as soon as it is finished. TVM was a seven-year franchise. They began to change it from the moment they occupied, and it's now something else. And I think all buildings have to be flexible. But I was brought up in a Catholic church. I was a Roman Catholic in my childhood. I've seen the church change. It's changed its rules in my lifetime, if it goes back 2,000 years as it does, what changes have come about then? And the, the cathedrals of the medieval times, or even pre- and post-medieval times, are magnificent. They're magnificent because my father-in-law was a bricklayer once, and I thought a lot about the people that go to make buildings heroic buildings or beautiful buildings. They're all involved in sculpture and just simple bricklaying. So the art of building is capable of many hands over time, and uh, they will keep making it their livelihood, and their, they get satisfaction from beauty. And as a kind of, towards the end of our conversation, as a sort of parting thought, we're sitting in London, a city where so much of your work has taken place, where you've obviously lived and thought and taken in all of the things happening. We won't talk about Brexit, but I think we should acknowledge that there is something in the urban fabric that's changing a little bit. Are you optimistic about London's capacity to continue to be a relevant city, just based on its built environment? London's been uh, very fortunate geographically there will always be uh, a major city here. I remember the 70s when it was going down in population and there was a location of officers bureau, LOB, where you couldn't build offices in the centre of London and you got grants for moving out. 
and the population went down. All these things will go through phases. Right now, we're in a phase of urbanization. And we look at uh, Lagos to Beijing or elsewhere, you're, uh, Mexico City, uh, all these places are growing. That's where you need the designers and thinkers to concentrate. And lastly, you have a, a tremendous oeuvre of work that is built all over the world and a kind of lineage of thought and thinking about master planning that would be heeded for generations. But you continue to work and you have an office in the Far East. Is that where you see the, the benchmarks of urbanism being for the future? Or is that a market that you feel you can have some more influence on in a less staid way than perhaps London is? Why the fascination with the Far East? Well, the uh, action is there. Most architects like to live in Hampstead or San Francisco or, or on uh, Greenwich Village, but the work is elsewhere because you're changing, you're building new. And most architects wouldn't live in the new. I know very few architects that live in new buildings because it takes a while to bed down. It needs layers of history to make it a good place. And are you ever afraid or afeard of being the person to build the new thing? I build new, and I have to build new. That's the way the economy works for architects. Mind you, I think we should be employed much more to think about the council housing estate of the 60s, the hospital of the 50s, 60s, 70s, the schools, they aren't employed architects. There's no money in it, but uh, you need other minds apply themselves to it because the changes happen all the time. But you're optimistic about the future of architecture, about the future of the career that you've devoted yourself to for these decades and scaled the heights of? Yeah, I'm optimistic because where I'm optimistic is that it's spread now. The School of Architecture I was in was an ivory tower for um, all male. Uh, there was one female in the final year, and she left, leaving us all male. There was 120 students in total. Now, the School of Architecture is many, many hundreds. In fact, first year is more uh, bigger than the, the whole school was then. And it's more than 50% female. So I'm optimistic in the sense that we're all getting much more education. They're becoming a flatter line economically. We're all living more comfortable lives. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Sir Terry Farrell. My many and varied thanks to Sir Terry Farrell there. The big interview was produced by Daphne Carnesis and Yolene Goffan and edited by the ever-patient Christy Evans, not to mention Cassie Galpin. I'm Josh Fennett. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>